Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. We've got a really busy show this week. So as always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you like what you hear, you want to do something nice, please share on social media, tell a friend, leave us a five-star review on Facebook or on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. As I said earlier, we actually have a really, really busy show this week, so I'm going to try to keep this really short. We have two awesome guests. Up first, though, is not a player. He's an author, and he came out with a great book called Down Goes Brown, The History of the NHL uh, by Sean McAdoo. And for those that don't know, Sean has a blog called Down Goes Brown. I know he's writing for The Athletic now. Longtime Toronto Maple Leafs and NHL historian. He's been around. I had an opportunity to grab a copy of his book, and I loved it, so I asked him to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about it. In addition to telling player stories, I also want NHL history to get out there. And this book is a perfect median to to deliver some history. So if you're getting ready to do some holiday shopping, pick up this book. It's awesome. It's available on Amazon. If I'm not mistaken, it was just ranked one of the top sports books in Canada across the nation. Get this book, The Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL by Sean McIndoe. In addition to have Sean join us, we also have our normally scheduled interview with Darren Kimball. Darren tells us about playing for the Quebec Nordiques, the St. Louis Blues, being a fighter in the NHL. This interview is awesome. Darren was so great, so laid back. He didn't hold back. He tells us lots of great stories. In part one, we talk about Gila Fleur. We talk about Joe Sackick. We talk about his struggle moving through the system and, and kind of being a member of the Quebec Nordiques and kind of who turned him around and, and was able to help him kind of get down the right path. So as I said, I try to typically keep these around a half hour each. This one's going to run over. I apologize, but I'm not going to talk anymore. Let's go ahead and get to the interview with Sean McIndoo, the author of The Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL. Sean, you've been around for a while. I, I've got to ask, though, the NHL has been around for a century. Why did you decide to tackle the history of the NHL? I mean, there's so much there as opposed to another topic. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've always kind of been a bit of a history nerd uh, sure. when it comes to the NHL. Uh, I've always, uh, anyone who, who kind of reads the the stuff that I do on a day-to-day basis knows that I love to, I, I love to kind of process things through the lens of of history and and even if something is happening today it's it's like okay what can we has has anything like this happened before sure if so what what was it and how did it turn out and what can we learn about that and so uh when you had the nhl with its its centennial season and and sort of all this uh uptick in the history uh, interest in the history of the game uh that felt like a good time to to sort of take on this kind of project and it did feel like a big project and there was a part of me uh that uh, you know they wondered if it was too big and i did have people in at various steps in the process saying like you know what if what if we just did the original six or what if we right. just did the expansion era or something like that but i, I really felt pretty strongly that I, I wanted to do a complete picture because everything builds on everything else, and and even the early days uh, with all of these long gone teams that are that are largely forgotten kind of builds the foundation uh, that creates the original six, and then that creates the uh, the, the foundation 
for for what's going to come in the expansion era. And so I, I didn't I didn't want to skip past anything. And and uh, you know I felt like readers would want to see the the whole picture because I I think even hockey fans who uh, you know certainly there are lots of fans out there who are brand new or they're young fans and and they don't know most of this stuff. Uh, but even the fans who've been around for a while and and maybe know a lot of this on on some level uh, are still uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that a lot of details or or a lot of side stories and and kind of subplots that uh, they that they haven't heard about and I thought would find very interesting. So uh, we we made the decision that look we're going to do the whole thing start to finish uh, from day one and and in fact even from before day one uh, and how, how the NHL even got to day one in the first place because that on its own is an interesting story. And uh, it, that was the, the idea to, to do, as, do the whole thing, try to pack it into 300 pages or less, keep it moving quickly. Uh, don't, I, I, I never wanted to write a textbook uh, and I never wanted to write something that would feel like a homework assignment to read. Uh, so it moves fast. Uh, it, a lot of it is done tongue in cheek and, and, uh, uh, but it uh, it does hit on everything, and uh, at the end of the day, I, I think I think we managed to get it all in there uh, and and do it all justice uh, without bogging it down too much. You did do a great job of of jamming a hundred years of history into two hundred and fifty pages, and and like you said, it's not a textbook. The book really, you do a good job of kind of. You give some information, you get kind of in depth, and then you give a chapter where you kind of lighten things up and you tell some pretty funny stories. I think my personal favorite was how Harrison Ford was basically responsible for keeping Joe Sackick in Colorado, because you don't imagine Joe Sackick not being in Colorado or with the Quebec Nordiques. How did you find all these things? You know, a lot of it is is just stuff that had been kind of rattling around in my brain for years. I mean, I, I was always, even as a kid, uh, I was always the kid where I, I loved those those kind of weird, quick anecdotes mm-hmm. that you would get sometimes. And, you know, when when your favorite sports columnist was doing the, the Sunday notes column and they would just squeeze some reference in at the end or, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've described it a few times as the moment where you're watching a game and it's seven to two, uh, which wasn't unusual when, you know, back, when I was growing up watching the Leafs, not at all. And uh, you know, there, there's nothing going on, and there's really no reason to still be watching. And the announcers are trying to desperately fill airtime. And you know, that's the time when you know suddenly the color guy will just randomly drop some reference and 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 be like, yeah, you know, this reminds me of the time that the Pittsburgh Penguins all wore earmuffs during an NHL game, or this reminds me of the time that NHL players had to officiate their own game because there was a snowstorm and the referees didn't show up. Or this reminds me of the time uh, that in LA that somebody threw a chicken on the ice wearing a cape and the ref didn't notice. So everyone had to play around this live chicken. Uh, it's just for, crazy. For and, and, you know, and, and then, you know, inevitably in the game, you know, there's an icing and they go, okay, we're going to commercial. And I would be sitting there as a kid going, I want to wait a second, go back to that. I want to hear right. more about that story. And of course, back then you couldn't just jump on Google or wherever and, uh, uh, and get the details. So, you know, I, I had all these kind of shards and shrapnels kicking around in my, in my head of, uh, of bits and pieces of information. And then a lot of stuff that I picked up over the course of my writing career, where either in, in the course of researching something else, I, I'd stumbled on something, or I've had a lot of readers over the years who've shared stories with me because they, they get the sense that, uh, that I'm into this kind of stuff. And so they, they want to tell me they're the, the weird stories from their own team's history. So, you know, when, when it came time to do the book, there, there certainly were a handful of things that as I was doing the research phase, new stories that, that, that I found or, uh, or, or was reminded of and uh, wanted to put in there. But, uh, you know, to be honest, 
a lot of it just kind of started with a big long list of of, of stuff that I wanted to hit, and I, and I think by the end of it, I got most of that stuff in there. I was so impressed by the referee story where you talked about how if the referees don't show up that you actually, in 1983, had there was one game in the NHL where two players actually acted as linesmen. I was familiar with the rule that if a suitable official was not available, you could go ahead and, and, and have somebody work as a substitute. I didn't realize, though, and I know the rule book inside and out, or at least did at one time, that you could actually have players come on the ice and officiate the game. It's, it, it's, it's such a fascinating story for two reasons. Number one is that the rule exists at all. And, and by the way, it still does. If you yeah, absolutely. Of, of, of today's NHL rulebook, it's rule 31.11. You can, you can go in, it's, it's, it's right there. And it basically outlines a scenario where the officials don't show up to a game uh, and and are uh, are unable to work the game for whatever reason. And and what do you do? And and it's it's interesting in its own right because it kind of goes down a checklist and it starts with the obvious. If 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 the referee who's supposed to work the game isn't available, is there another NHL referee in the building or nearby? Right. If so, you get him. If not, okay, are there any officials nearby who who have worked at a pro level or you know or semi pro? And then it kind of goes down this checklist, and then it gets to the last item on the list, which is if there's nobody. With any officiating experience, then you, you you turn to the players, and the players end up officiating their own game. And and I mean, I, I love that on its own, and I probably would have included the book on its own. But you hear something like that, and you think, okay, that that sounds that sounds cool, but surely that has never actually happened in the NHL. And and as you say, of course, it has. It happened once, and not that long ago. Like we're not talking nineteen twenty three here. This no, nineteen eighty three. Uh, game between the Devils and the Whalers, and there's just a, a, a huge snowstorm, and two of the officials can't make it to the game. One linesman does get there, and he and he realizes you know the game's ready to go. The players are there. There's there's basically nobody else in the building, but the players are ready. The game's going to go ahead as scheduled. He's got to look at Rule Thirty One Eleven and start going down the checklist. There's no other reps around. There's no officials. He can't find anybody with any experience. So he gets to the bottom and he invokes Rule Thirty One Eleven and he goes to the Devils and the Whalers and says, "Each one of you needs to give me one player, uh, and I'm going to referee, and those, those players are going to be the linesmen." And it it happened in a regular season game, counted in the standings, uh, that uh, you had these these two players who, for a period until the the officials finally did show up, uh, had to officiate their own game. The only time it's ever happened in the NHL. Uh, Pretty safe to say the only time it ever will happen because I think in the in well, the I'm ages, just I'm just hoping that Tom Wilson's going to be a linesman here next week. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm holding out for that. Can we imagine that? That's my that's my favorite part of the story is that, that there's a quote from one of the players where he's because because one of the players was his team's enforcer and he wasn't playing that night, so they they had him go be the linesman and he was like, I was just begging for there to be a fight for me to jump in and break up. I, I wanted that so bad, <laughs> and it never did happen. But one of the players did get to throw Ron Francis out of a faceoff, so there's uh, you, you got that consolation your, prize. Uh, your consolation prize. Um, you know, you walk through like I said, each decade, a hundred years. Is there a decade that sticks out? out to you that is something that you enjoy when you go, you know, the 70s and the NHL, that was my favorite decade. Is there anything that stuck out in your research that, you know, made you pick out a favorite decade or something like that? I mean, my, my favorite decade as a fan was, you know, growing up, I'm like everyone else, right? Yeah. Whatever, yeah. whatever it was when you were a kid. And, you know, I grew up in kind of 
came online as a hockey fan around the mid 80s and then into the early 90s and then their high scoring and Wayne Gretzky and Mary Lemieux and all of that. Uh, and that, that is still to this day my favorite, uh, era as a fan. But, but in terms of doing the research in the book, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it was the 1970s, which yeah. would be to me the one that stuck out for, you know, because A, again, just it it lines up well because it's it's the era right before I was a fan, so a lot of this stuff I never saw firsthand, and yet I had heard some of the stories and I knew some of the names, and it's not quite like reaching back into the twenties or thirties where a lot of it feels unfamiliar and, and very far away. Um, but the other thing was that you know the nineteen seventies was just such a such a bizarre era for the NHL because you know in nineteen sixty seven there's six teams right in the NHL, and that's it. There are six pro hockey teams if you want to play with the very best of the best there's six teams 120 jobs that's it in the entire world uh and then by 1960 you know 1967 comes along the league doubles to 12 teams 1970 they go to 14 suddenly it's you know 16 up to uh up, up to 18 teams at one point and you've got the World Hockey Association shows up, and so suddenly you've got all these other teams in this competing league that is trying to get players, and uh, and 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 you've got bidding wars, and the league isn't quite sure how to handle this whole situation with this this competing league, uh, and so suddenly you go from 1967, where there's six hockey teams, to you know by the mid 70s, there's you know there's 30 teams. I was out to say there. 25 to 30 teams, right? Yeah, and, and there's not you know and, and and I mean you imagine talent wise what that does, and and so uh, you know you've got these extraordinarily talented players like Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito, but suddenly they're playing against guys who wouldn't even have been on the top farm team just a decade ago, and now they're in the NHL. And so not surprisingly, you see suddenly all these records are just being shattered and, and you know, these these uh, th- these just phenomenal scoring totals and uh, that uh, that you're suddenly seeing um, because of the, the gap in talent between the players and then all this weird stuff happening off the ice. Some teams are – some of the new teams are succeeding. Some of them are failing almost right away. You've got teams moving. You've got a team folding still to this day, the last North American pro sports team in the big four to actually just fold and disappear. And instead of moving somewhere, you've got weird stories going on. And the, you know, the, the, the NHL draft is still relatively new and it, and it lasts for 25 rounds. And you've got the Buffalo Sabres getting pissed off one year that it's taking so long and deciding they're just going to invent a made up player and from Japan and draft him. Which that story. Oh my God. I could not believe that when I read that in the book, not to give the book away, um, but you bring that up. Oh my God. I was like, this is not possible. It's yeah, it's the kind of thing. I mean, you'd you'd never see it today. I mean, certainly, I mean, everyone would be way too serious to ever even try it today. Not not you know, and and the fact that uh, you know, again, not not to give away the whole story, but uh, uh, they play this joke on the league, and then it lasts for weeks and weeks. Like they don't fess up. Yeah, the league buys it. They believe it. Buys it, and the the media. You've got Buffalo media sitting around waiting for this Japanese superstar that no one has ever heard of to show up at training camp, and uh, you know, stuff like that going on. You got the the great story with the uh, at the 1970 draft with the wheel with the the Canucks and the Sabers trying to figure out who's going to get the first pick and draft Gilbert Perot and it, it involves a big novelty raffle wheel and then the president of the league misreads it and gives the star player to the wrong team and, uh, and you know just all of this stuff as this you know basically what was happening is you had this little six team league that it just had this 25 year era with just the same six teams. 
the same people involved, the same voices, and suddenly there's this explosion of growth, and they don't know how to handle it. And, and there's a lot of just weird, random stuff going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they eventually kind of uh, come out of the wobble and stabilize a little bit and, uh, and, and eventually become the, the very professional organization we see today. But uh, back there in the 70s, it, it felt like there was a, uh, you know, almost this anything goes mentality. Uh, and that was just off the ice. I mean, once you got on the ice, uh, it was it was a whole different world. Crazy things happening there, and players are going into the stands and hitting fans with shoes. And you know, there's there's fog and bats on the ice. And I mean, it's just uh, you, you you could do you could do a real good book about crazy NHL history that just uh, just did the 1970s only. The next CBA, uh, or before we kind of touch uh, wrap everything up, I know you're busy, and I really appreciate you coming on. One of the things that you did a really good job of is for guys like me that aren't really legally or economically savvy, you did a great job of breaking down labor relations in the National Hockey League over the past, really since the beginning, over the past hundred years. One thing that you did a great job of was talking about the reasons behind each lockout. And you said it yourself at the beginning of the interview, history tends to repeat itself, so you want to know a lot about it. The next CBA ends in 2020. You don't have a crystal ball. You can't predict the future. But based on the history and the research you've done, how could you see this playing out? Well, I mean, I, the way I see it playing out is that we're headed towards another lockout. Yeah, and that's what I was afraid uh, and, you were going to say. Yeah. And, and, and I write that in the book. You know, the, and there, there's uh, in passages where I, I describe why that is. I, I will say that in the last couple of months, there does seem to be more optimism coming from uh, from from certain channels, as as far as maybe this is the time that we avoid a lockout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I will believe it when I see it. And and you know I wrote just last week in in one of my columns that I uh, I'm I'm not at all uh, uh, interested in giving Gary Bettman any sort of benefit of the doubt here uh, because uh, yeah when you look at the history of the, the three lockouts this league has had I mean look 1994 that was a that was Gary Bettman had been brought in to get a salary cap. And, and he went to war to get that salary cap in 1994, and he failed. And the reason that he failed is because he thought he had his owner solidly behind him, and he didn't. And when push came to shove, and it looked like they were getting ready to lose the full season, his owners caved on him, and, and they, they pushed him to make a deal with, with Bob Goodenow, and Bob Goodenow won that, uh, that confrontation. Uh, you fast forward ahead 10 years, now it's 2004. Gary Bettman's learned his lesson. He still wants his salary cap, but now he's going to make darn sure that he's got his owners behind him, and and that's that's the Armageddon. You know that that is to this day the only full season in the history of North American pro sports to be canceled entirely, start to finish by a by a work stoppage, um, and you know still to this day a very bitter pill for for hockey fans. But at the very least. As, as as awful as that was to lose a whole season and to lose a Stanley Cup, uh, I think fans at least understand why that lockout happened. That you had a league that said, we need a salary cap, and you had players saying, we will never play under a salary cap. And really, the only way to resolve that kind of big moral issue is that you've just got to wait until one side cracks. And this time, it was the players that cracked and the owners who who got the win, even though a lot of, of of what ended up happening still was was quite favorable to the players. On the big issue, Gary Bettman got his win. So now you know we're two lockouts in, and both of the lockouts have been painful, and both of them have been uh, you know things that that hockey fans uh, are are to this day unhappy about. But at least there was a big issue, and then along comes 2012, and suddenly. 
we're doing this all over again. And, and there, there is no big issue this time. There's no salary cap. There's, we're arguing over percentages, you know, whether it's 57 or 55 or 50, 50, uh, we're arguing over how long contracts should be, but it's the sort of stuff that every other league is able to get done. Every other league is able to, to sit down at the, at the bargaining table and hammer out a deal. And yet, once again, for the third time, the NHL goes into lockout mode. And that was, I think, the, the moment that it clicked for a lot of us that, wait a second, this isn't what this league does when there's a real big issue uh, that has to be nailed down. This is just what this league does, period. Uh, right. th- this is this is the point where and and you know understandably I mean they had lost a half a season in the 90s they'd lost the full season 2005 both times the fans came back we all complained we all you know a lot of us said that that's it I'm never coming back we all came back and what did we uh, all do we all came back we all came back we all bought the tickets you know they painted thank you on the on the ice and that was enough so you know it became very clear in 2012 that this was now just the business plan. There were a lot of teams that still weren't making a lot of money. There were a lot of teams that were perfectly happy to miss half a season and miss half their payroll and, and still have playoffs. Uh, and so, you know, I think 2012, a lot of us were looking around going, what is the big issue here? Why do we, why are we losing half a season when every other league these days seems to be able to figure this stuff out and get it done? And, and I think the answer was because that's just how the NHL operates. And this is a new part of the business plan. And, and I'm, uh, I, I'm expecting, uh, unfortunately, that in 2020, we're going to see the same thing or 2020, whenever it is, when, whenever the deal gets reopened. Um, I'm expecting you're going to see the same thing. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's the owners doing the same thing they've already done three times and locking the players out. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the players who initiate it this time and, and the players who take the lead. Because you know what? At the end of the day, if, 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 if you sucker punch me three times, on the fourth time, I better be ready. Shame on you. you know, right. At, Shame at on some me. Yeah. Point, yeah. At some point, if I'm coming in with a big, goofy smile on my face the fourth time, uh, getting ready to get decked again, uh, then the problem's on my end. And so, you know, I, I and you can already kind of see that happening in the PR spin that there's this, uh, you're, you're seeing this message be put out there that, well, you know, this time it might be the player's fault. And this time at the owners, oh, we don't, we don't want to lock out this time, but those, those players might force us into it. I don't buy that for a second. I mean, this is the the players have got to at some point take a stand and and not just let themselves get run over each and every time. It's it's time to do this. So maybe I'm proven wrong. Maybe Gary Bettman, now that he's a Hall of Famer, uh, is starting to think <laughs> about his starting to think about his legacy and and doesn't want to be the guy who had a lockout every single time. Uh, maybe some common sense kicks in. Uh, it, it'd be nice. But I will believe it when I see it uh, and, and not a moment before then. Well, if history tells us anything, it's Gary Bettman will follow the dollar and uh, we might unfortunately have another lockout. The book yep. is Down Goes Brown. It's by Sean McAdoo. Sean, where can people find it? They can uh, find it pretty much anywhere. Anywhere you buy books, you should be able to get it in your local bookstore. You want to get a, uh, a hardcover copy to hold in your hands, you can do that. If, uh, you, uh, if you buy your books online on Amazon or wherever else, you will, you will find it there as well. Uh, there is an e-book and there is even an audio book. So if, uh, if you prefer, uh, prefer your books uh, read to you, you can listen to my voice uh, tell you about NHL history for, uh, for about eight hours. Nice and soothing. And on that note, Sean, how can people get in touch with you if they have questions, I know you got a big social media presence. What's your Twitter Twitter handle? Can you share that? 
Yeah, get me on Twitter at uh, at Down Goes Brown, and uh, any uh, any questions you have on on the book, or if you do get the book, uh, I've had a lot of people who've uh, who've read it and and wanted to reach out and kind of share their favorite story or what they learned or uh, you know the the discussions that they ended up having with their uh, other hockey fans or you know people are are tweeting me saying like hey you know I I told my dad this story and he couldn't believe it or he did remember that and he told me some other stuff that uh, that I didn't know um I love hearing those stories so uh, certainly uh, shoot me a shoot me a message if if you've got anything like that because uh, uh, I uh, I'm I'm more than happy to uh, spend my day having those sorts of conversations instead of doing actual work Sean thanks a lot for coming on the show we'll catch you next time uh, please I'd love to have you back to talk more hockey history if you ever have a chance Sounds good let's do it All right talk to you soon thanks I want to thank Sean once again for coming on. I can't reiterate this enough how much I enjoyed his book. I was able to actually read it over Thanksgiving, and it was the perfect read. It was the perfect length, and it you know was very detailed considering it was only 250 pages. He really did a good job of cramming a lot of information in there so that you don't miss out on a lot of the details. You still get the full picture, but it doesn't read like a textbook. Moving on to our second interview of the episode, let's go ahead and bring in Darren Kimball. For those that might not be familiar with the show format, we cover a snapshot of a player's career, a moment in time, and we try to get as in-depth as possible. So for Darren Kimball, we talk about his ascension through the minors and then playing for the Quebec Nordiques in the 90-91 season and his trade to St. Louis. In part one, we pretty much cover up through pretty much his time in the minors, the preseason, as well as a little bit of the regular season. And then part two, we'll cover the remaining season as well as his trade to the St. Louis Blues. That will air on Thursday at 8 a.m. So here's part one of our interview with Darren Kimball. Nineteen ninety. It's your third season in the league. I saw an article that you agreed to terms with the Nordiques in September of nineteen ninety. Do you recall what kind of contract at that time you were on with the Nordiques? Yeah, uh, well, I I just come off uh, my first contract with them was, was a two way contract, so I was making ninety thousand, twenty five thousand the minors. Then the next year was ninety thousand, twenty seven five hundred. Okay. And then the last year was a hundred thousand and thirty thousand. I think that's the number they were at at that point in time. So you were on a two way. My first contract, and that was your first contract. Yeah. So your second contract. Yeah. So I started out with a two way, and then there were stipulations in there. If your if the hockey team was in first place or second place in the division, it turned into a one way. If you had so many games, it turned into a one way. So I, I had like I signed like a one fifty, one seventy five, two hundred. I think it was my second contract. So. That's where it sat at before I, uh, the trade had uh, got taken place. And for the, the two years prior, you'd been kind of back and forth a little bit between Halifax and Quebec. At that point, why do you think you hadn't really stuck and had kind of still been riding the bus back and forth between Halifax and Quebec? Well, uh, the first year when I went in there, Gord Donnelly was a tough guy at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went in a camp and I fought Gord twice. And I did, I did really well. And uh, so... I think, and then I continued on through exhibition that year, and I had like eight or nine fights in like eight games. And I was fighting everybody, Brewery, you name it, all the tough guys that were there. I was I was going after to make a name for myself, obviously. Sure. So then when the camp come to an end, Gord was on a one-way contract at that point in time, and so they kept Gord, and uh, they sent me down to the minors. So then I, I ran down to the minors, and my first stint down to the minors, I get down there, and Doug Carpenter, uh, he was the coach. Mm-hmm. We got playing down there, and... I was a 19-year-old kid sitting there, you know, playing with some uh, men that were, you know, the, you get to the minors at that point in time. It's, you know, there's there's some guys that know they're stuck in the minors for the rest of their life. As the story goes, you know, the prison stories go where they say, well, why are you in here? Well, 
I shouldn't be in here, but you know, this is the reason I'm in here. That's what's going on down there. The, everyone's right. got a story. So, you know, I was dealing with that and I sort of get got off track and uh, I got, you know, we got into the party crew a little bit and me and Dougie weren't seeing eye to eye. So that wasn't going very well. And, uh, you know, that ran, that ran for about a two month period, two and a half month period. And I, my, the, the best story I got out of that when I was sitting there, Dean Hopkins was down there. He was an older guy that had played up in LA for a little bit. He was sitting down he was from Halifax. So he was the elder statesman of the group uh, that they'd called in. And, and Mike Huff was another one. And Mike Huff had, he really hadn't, he was 30 years old. And he really hadn't got a shot at the NHL either. And he fought in the minors all, not fought, but he battled his way through the minors. And he was, and Quebec, you know, we weren't, Quebec wasn't very good at that time. So he even gets a shot at it. But going back to me, I was sitting down one night with them. And I can remember it clearly. It was our Christmas party there. And we were out looking over the lake and uh, Dean Hopkins and Mike Hopkins were talking to me. And they said, they pretty well told me, Kimby, you better, you, you got to get going here. Because you you could be going to the East Coast League here pretty soon. If not, you're stuck. Yeah, and yeah. So then you know that sort of hit home, and uh, it was kind of funny because I, I took it to heart because you know I my goal was to get to the National Hockey League, and uh, obviously I was going down a route road that probably wasn't going to get me there. And so we had like three games coming up with the three toughest guys in, uh, in the AHL at the time. Van Dorp was one of them. Mm-hmm. Serge Roberge was one of them, and Mike Ware was one of them. So the next three games were those guys, and I I fought each one of them did really well. So I went from that conversation with Hoppy and, and Mike Huff to two weeks later, I got called up to the National Hockey League. Oh, wow. And that's when you made your original debut. So then I got called up and yeah, and I played the rest of the year up there with, with the Nordiques. So the Nordiques are coming off prior to the 1990 season. They're coming off an incredibly rough 89-90 season. The team only had won 12 oh, yeah. out of 80 games. Yep. As a result, the ownership group makes some changes in order to try and, and kind of right the ship. Current GM Maurice Fillon was replaced by Pierre Paget. And Piaget then brought in Dave Chambers to be the new head coach. As a young player, did you see these changes in the organization coming? I mean, you you lose 12 games. You had to see something coming. Yeah, but it was, uh, you see, when Quebec was going on, Michelle Bergeron was there uh, when I first got there. And and, uh, Bergey was pretty popular in Quebec City. He was a guy that, you know, he was a a media guy that loved to talk to the media. Mm -hmm. And the media loved him because, you know, he just had a, a bonding with them and and, and he was pretty vibrant about what he was doing all the time, you know, and, and, and Bergie liked me. So I was, originally I was in a good spot. And then um, when Bergie got, when, when Bergie left out of there, he got a little, uh, you know, John, I think John Perron comes in there at one point in time too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I might, before Dave Chambers comes, someone comes after Bergie. I thought, it, or maybe it was Ronald Point or something. They're all mixed in there together. But uh, Dave Chambers finally gets there. And, you know, Joe Sackick's there. Matt Sundin's there. Curtis decisions playing. So they had a good nucleus coming, the good draft picks that they had. And they, they changed to just, this is, this is my thing. He, he just wasn't, he was a guy that come out of college, but it was a bunch of young guys that were sitting there and their personalities were just didn't mess with David at this point in time. Really? Cause and you're, this was Dave. He was a rookie coach. He had not been a coach before. And like you said, there were a ton of young guys in this camp. I mean, you had a couple first round picks. Owen Nolan was attending camp for the first time. Matt, oh, yeah. no, no, there yet. Matt Sundin had just signed. You said Saka. So you would have thought that they would have brought somebody in that was really a player's coach that was good with young guys. And, and he wasn't? No, it was, it was, uh, 
he, like so when Pierre Paget come, uh, I believe, and you have to you can follow this up on me, but I, I believe Chambers comes from college. Does he not come out of the Minnesota area? If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, he did, and I'll, and I'll definitely follow up. And and I think the, what was interesting is he was the assistant coach for Pierre Paget when Paget was coaching the yeah. season before, so they had Correct. a close relationship Correct. together. Yeah, so he goes, uh, so Chambers comes in, and he's a college guy coming in, and. But it just—I don't. I think he was a, a guy that come in, and colleagues might have been good to him, and maybe he was with Pierre, but it wasn't working for him. His personality just didn't mesh. I think when you when you grow up like Joe Sackick and these guys, you come through the Western Hockey League ranks or the Ontario or Canadian, wherever you're coming through. Usually, you ran into coaches that were pretty, you know, the the scare mentality, the yell mm-hmm. mentality, and all that non, that stuff going on because that was the era that we grew up in. They didn't scare you, but they they sort of basically. You either did it their way or, or it wasn't getting done. That was the old era way, and, you know, they, they held you accountable. But David's personality was nothing like that. It was, uh, he was a person that was, you know, a very quiet guy. I, I don't think he could ever get mad, and uh, it, just, it just wasn't a fit for us at that point in time. And you are right. Dave Chambers did coach at Ohio State University in the CCHA. Ten years later, he wound up in Minnesota as an assistant. And then one year mm-hmm. later, with barely any coaching, he never played in the NHL. He was the head coach of the Quebec Nordiques. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I was uh, that. Well, the, the connection with Pierre is where he gets that at, and and you know that's that's the way it goes. But I, I just think that his mentality or his personality, not mentality, his because I believe the man knew the game. I'm not I'm not questioning Absolutely. that because you know guys like John Perron, you know he he never played the game either, and and he went on and he won a Stanley Cup, and you know Pat Burns wasn't the guy that ran through the ranks either. I don't believe, and you know no, they, yeah. they won the he won the Stanley Cup, so there was guys that could do it. Mike Keenan, you know there was guys that could do that, but his personality wasn't a. It wasn't a raw, raw yell at him, you know this stuff, that stuff. It was a guy that come in and sorted through the probably at the college ranks. You could tell, and you know, here's how I need you to do it, and this is the way I would like you to do it. And if you didn't do it, he, he really couldn't get mad at you for not doing it. It, it, it just had, that's the personality the man had. Well, let's talk about his first training camp with the Nordiques. Then you had been through a couple NHL training camps already. How was his camp different mm-hmm. than the prior ones that you had been to? Um, you know, as all camps to me back in that day were it was no matter who the co- the coach was, it was mm-hmm. you know they 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 were all the same way. So I'm not I don't think it really stands out the way he ran the camp because when you go to a training camp and back in the day every training camp that they went was the same way for me it was anyway because I would come in and you know people you'd probably fight everybody in your and, way yeah you'd probably just yeah. go after whoever was in your in your path yeah so and I had a role to play and that's you know once you establish yourself as a tough guy in the in the National Hockey League. You basically, that's the role you had to go. So if new guys were coming in, you had to do your job. So my training camps were all the same. And it's conditioning wise, you know, you showed up and they usually got skated a lot. And they, then you went and played games. And, you know, it wasn't a lot into the riding bikes and all that stuff back in that day. You come and you, then you put the work in on the ice. And, and, that, and that's the way it went. And you sort of, you know, the old guys basically come in and that's how you, that's a lot of guys got in shape when they got to camp. You know, it wasn't a year round sport at that point in time. It was, uh, you know, you did your training, but then once you got there, a lot of guys were still going through the, pro- especially veterans, you know, they'd come in and they'd, they they use camp as a, a mechanism to get in shape. We talked about two young players, some first round picks that attended camp the first time. We had future Hall of Famer, Matt Sundin, and we had Owen Nolan. What do you remember about these two players during their first camps? It, you know, it was uh, like Owen Nolan. It was, um, you, you could tell he, he was uh, he was a player that, would you know he he liked to play the physical stuff. He had all mm-hmm. the skills in the world. What he become? That you know I, I envisioned that for him because he he was a guy that could fight anybody when he wanted to. It's just 
Owen had to find, he had to find his own mark in the in the in the NHL and sure you know and I think with Owen and uh, I was the guy that originally I don't know if it stuck with him but we used to call him Buster and <laughs> but you know he there was a point in time where you know when he come in his conditioning wasn't on top of the on top of the game so that that was part of the his and and after that it got better obviously because right. he went he went on to be a good player but he'd come in with all the skill but there was still another another thing that he had to get to, and that was his, the physical part of his ball game where, you know, the game was changing. The game was even changing back then. You could see where it was going. You know, with Mike Keenan coming, the, a lot of the conditioning was coming into play. So uh, all teams were going that direction, and I think Owen had to buy into that, and and he did. So and once he got to that point and figured out how good he was, you know, he'd become, a, you know, the player that he was. And Matt, he, he was he's just a guy that could skate 100 miles an hour with long strides and everything, and, I think he just when he first got there, it, it was just a part of getting to know the league because obviously it was mm-hmm. a different game than he was used to playing, and it, it was a lot more back in the day when the game was played. There was there was a lot of fighting going on, and so he had probably had to adjust to that. And you know there was checking lines that guys were they could hook you and hit you and do all this stuff to you that you know the game doesn't have now. And and that he had to get to, and once he adjusted to that, and you know a lot of these guys when they show up at camp. Like even Mike Medano, you know, they were 160 pounds, 170 right. pounds. So it took him a couple of years to, to fill out. And, you know, and that's what happened with uh, Sundin. You know, he, once he filled out, look what he become. He was He's become unbelievable. He is a Hockey Hall of Famer. And I want to ask you with Owen yeah. Nolan, he is not in the Hall of Fame yet. Do you think yeah. there is a spot for him there? I, I Do I think there, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Fame is a sticky thing. Because I, I got a buddy named Jeremy uh, Roenick and, you know, he's not in the Hall of Fame. and True. And I think, you know, and he's got no Stanley Cups, and I, I don't believe Owen's got any Stanley Cups. I don't believe he did. Did he get one? I don't, I don't believe he, he did. did. He? I don't believe he did, because I know he was no. with San Jose. I know he was with Quebec, and I'm trying to yeah. think who else. I, I don't and think he won one. He, yeah, he got out of, He got out of there before Colorado went from yep. Quebec to Colorado. So, you know, so I... Uh, so I don't know if that's if that's what they're holding them guys accountable to, and you know Keith Kachuk's in the ball game too because he does, he's not there, but he didn't win a Stanley Cup. So I, you know, but a guy like Cam Neely, who I respect full heartedly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he got in there and he didn't win a Stanley Cup, and true, you know, so and and Cam and Owen Nolan is pretty well the same type of hockey player that Cam Neely was, and Jeremy Roenick, and you know, these guys are are definitely in Cam's um, uh, camp. I believe they should all be in the Hall of Fame. The way the standards going now, you know, it's not. And I'm not trying to sound being an ass by saying this, no. but you know, the Hall of Fame has got. I think the Hall of Fame in all sports has sort of become a, a different version. You know, like I still believe these guys should get there, but some guys get in that I wouldn't thought got in, and you know, they're ahead of these guys. But Jeremy Roenick, he was what hockey was all about back in the day. You know, he would run around a, a centerman, 185 pounds, or whatever running and any of the fight guys and scoring a hundred points. And, and how, how does this guy not get into the national? Because he, the longevity Kachuk, the long, it's just amazing that these guys, the numbers they got and they can't get in there. I feel like Keith Kachuk should be in there if for no other reason, just for his personality. Cause every interview yeah. I hear with this guy, he just makes me laugh. <laughs> and that's what Jay, uh, that's what Jeremy was too, JR. And look what Jeremy's doing now. Christ, he's uh, down in the States here on NBC. He's the guy that's sitting on there doing, they doing their Wednesday night hockey games and all this, you know, so you'd think they at least push the guy through because he's one of the hosts of the show. I almost feel like he's the Terry Bradshaw of hockey in the sense of Terry Bradshaw yeah. will do anything for a laugh and he's funny and he's goofy. I feel like Jeremy Roenick's the same way. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, my two years with him, I, uh, he's one of the funniest guys that I've ever uh, been around in the, in the hockey. And, and it's kind of funny because 
uh, I, and we might get to this later, but yep. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But he was, uh, he was one of the, you know, best guys. He, he was good to me. And so I, I, but he was a funny man, funny man. And he's one of the, and we'll get to this later. He was one of the few men that has part of the, I got the crap kicked out of me by Darren Kimball. Um, <laughs> so towards the end of training camp, the Quebec Nordiques are continuing to mold their team and continuing to change. And they had picked up three players in the waiver draft, including Wayne Van Dorp, who we talked about earlier, Sean Anderson from Washington, and Aaron Broughton from Minnesota. The NHL doesn't have a waiver draft anymore. Can you kind of just discuss what that was? Yeah, it was, it was. Well, it was. It was sort of. It was sort of good because you know the players would go through the process of the guys that were on the bubble, and once you got so many years and uh, in the league. You know, if they wanted to send you down, at least you had to clear waivers to go through the process. So if you were, uh, at that time, Wayne Van Dorp, you know, he, he was sitting there, a guy that fought fought a lot of tough guys. Uh, he'd been trolled. He ran, ran through the minors a lot of times. He'd been up and down through the NHL. And, you know, it's a guy that, in that era, there, you know, there was probably two or three guys that were running on the NHL clubs and that could play that type of role. Quebec, at that point in time, I was there. Greg Smith was uh, there for a little bit, but there wasn't there wasn't anybody else, so it was just me. So that, that's I believe that's why they brought Van Dorp in at that point in time, just because to have another body there that could that that was the guy available at that point in time through the waiver wires. So we still have waivers today, but this was an actual dispersal draft. So would everybody that had to clear waivers was it almost like an order that you would go through, kind of like what we have now with waivers? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes, you'd go through the whole process, and they had they had so long to. Uh, they would, the team would have to announce they were sending you down. And then they, so basically that was putting you after you had so many years in the league. And then they said, you, you know, you're on waivers until you had to clear them. And then every team through the pecking order had to go through, put their claim in on you. And if they put the claim in, whoever was the lowest at that point in time got you. Okay. So it's still similar to the waivers process. I guess there's just not a true draft like there was. Yes. Correct. Correct. With all this shuffling going on. The team is kind of getting an identity now. Where do you feel like you fit in with this organization at the time? Well, before, so if you get before Dave, Dave Chambers shows up, uh, I, I was in a good spot because I, mm-hmm. you know, I get there, I, I'd established my name. You know, I'd fought guys like Dave Brown, fought him a couple times. I, I was going through the process, fighting every legit tough guy, Craig Berube, uh, all these guys that post check, you know, that the guys, the tough guys at the time. So I'd established that, and when Bergie was there, which was good, he was even giving me opportunities to play on the on the power play once in a while. So he stuck me in on the power play a couple times. So I was getting more ice time. And once in a while, I'd get out there with Sackick and get to play. And so you know things were going good. And then when Dave when Dave Chambers got there, that's you know sort of he come in, and me and him didn't really see eye to eye with the ball game. And that's where the process sort of goes south on me right there. October 5th, just prior to the start of the new season, it's announced the Quebec Nordiques have named Joe Sackick and Steve Finn as co-captains for the upcoming season. While the players were given a vote, the final decision was left up to head coach Dave Chambers, Jacques Martin, and Robbie Fatorik. I always found the co-captain thing kind of weird. What were your thoughts on having two captains? Yeah, I, I, well, I think, I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what their thought process is. You know, Robbie Fatorik was there, and, and he's one of them, you know, I, I liked him as a coach. He, I mm-hmm. just thought the real game. I had him in the minors for a while, and I ended up getting him back in Albany when I played in Albany. Uh, I ran into Robbie, and Robbie was always good to me. I, I just, I just liked the way the man ran the game. He was, he just understood it. But you know, so I don't, I don't understand. The, 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 it could be something that Robbie would construct. As, sure. You know, he come up with some wacky ideas here and there. Robbie would. So you know, you never know what the hell he was up to. But he, you know, he always wanted you thinking for some reason. So maybe it was a process of, you know, Joe wasn't quite ready to take it over, and they they wanted to wait, and uh, they had a. 
they also, uh, you know, you're playing in Quebec. So I, I believe the other guy you said was Stephen Finn, did you not? Correct. Yeah. So and Finn's, uh, you know, he's a he's a French guy from uh, from Quebec, and I believe at the time or close by. So you know, you're you got to sort of take care of that part of the, the French people that are, you know, they they want their like in Montreal goes through mm-hmm. it. You know, in England, uh, we just had that uh, Packer Eddie being there, an English guy. You know, the French much prefer having a French guy as a captain. I don't. That's just a fact. I think. Right. So you know, you go through that process. So maybe that was part of the thinking. So it didn't put all the pressure on Joe, and that's the only imagined because he was a he was going. You could tell he was going to be the superstar. God, he was. You know, coming into the league, he was just on fire, and so you knew what he was going to be able to do. But maybe there was just a playing to the crowd, and maybe didn't want to let Joe to have the whole whole range yet to take over there. We cannot do an interview about the Quebec Nordiques without touching on Joe Sackick. Tell me during this period what your thoughts were on Joe Sackick. Well, I, I knew him from junior. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah, bit. Western League boy. That's right. Yeah, he played out in Swift Current, and, you know, he ended up winning the Memorial Cup there. I was gone that year. They won the Memorial Cup, but that was his last year there. We we knew of him, but he was – I when, when he played in, in junior, they were on such a young team before mm-hmm. uh, when I played against them. They, you know, they were just starting out, and they become the Memorial Cup champions the year I left. So on the third year that Joe gets there, you know, that that's probably what I think sort of when he takes off. And when he got to Quebec, to watch the stuff, he like he's a quiet, kid, quiet, very quiet person. He was mm-hmm. at that time. And once you got to know him, he he fit in good, great with the boys. He could he could give it just as much as he got because he would get it too. So. You know, he was he was a he was a great guy in the dressing room. He never took any, you know, you know, he was good to kid around with. He he threw all his jabs at you, and you'd give it back. But you know, watching him play on the ice uh, when he first came up, he he was wearing the number eighty eight, I believe, the first at the start when he was playing. And to to see the stuff that he was doing on the ice at that point in time, because we, we were we we weren't much of a you know we were a hockey club, but it was just we just we weren't uh, we I don't think we had enough veterans, solid veterans, to play the game. So. Everything was sort of being fielded on Joe at that point in time. So, you know, he he was sort of trying to carry the team. And to, to watch the stuff that he was doing was, you knew that he was going to be a superstar at one point in time. You just knew it. Just days before the season starts, a report comes out that Claude Loisel has been sent home from training camp. Management believed that his demand for a trade had made him a bad influence among the team. He had come over in a deal with the New Jersey Devils for Joe Sorella and Walt Podumny the year before. And it was no secret that Walt Podumny also had requested a trade to leave Quebec. Why were so many guys unhappy to be in Quebec? Well, I, 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 and I ran through that myself. So, you know, Claude being there, I, I don't, I, I think back in the day, I think money was a, you know, when you when you went to play in Quebec, half the half your paycheck is going right out the at the door. Oh, that's right. They had a tax I, I, issue. That's right. Yeah. So there's a big tax thing. You're, you're, you know, you got the Canadian dollar that's rolling against the American dollar that was low at that time. Um, you know, like I think guys obviously what we were going through in Quebec at that point in time, it was the team wasn't doing very well. We, you know, you were losing all the time. So I think a lot of guys were trying to get out of there. Obviously the young guys, you can't get out of there. You got to <laughs> roll with it until your point. Uh, that, and that's not, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, the, when I went to Quebec and I was there for two and a half years, I think um, probably two years till I was up in the NHL. I, I loved every minute of it. I thought I loved the city. It was an opportunity for me to play in the national hockey league. The fans were awesome. You know, the, if, if they had a, if they had a team there that was doing well, uh, even when we weren't doing so well, they showed up all the time and they mm-hmm. were, they were great to be behind the club. And I, I loved it. And it was a, it was a small, it was like a small community out there too. Cause you know, as much as the, they spoke French and, and I didn't speak any French, but everybody knew who you were. They would, 
they would try to help you out and uh, they would, you know, they were, they were kind to you. So I, I love the place, uh, but I could see where people were, didn't want to play there because of the way the team was functioning. You know, if you get older in your career and you haven't won the Stanley Cup, maybe you want to move on. The money issues, you know, the, the taxes and everything that's going on. But coming from Canada, coming from Saskatchewan, as cold as it got out there, you know, the, the, weather didn't, the weather didn't bother me. You know, it didn't bother me at all. And I, I, I love every bit of Quebec. I really, I just got back from my kid went there and played Pee Wee Quebec about three, two years ago. He played in the big Pee Wee tournament Pee-wee, up there? Yeah, big Pee Wee tournament. So I had yep. been back in since that and just brought back a lot of old memories back there, just driving through. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a treat. It really was. Three games into the season, the Nordiques are still looking for their first win. But it doesn't help that two of your first three games have been against the Boston Bruins, who had the best overall regular season record in the prior season. This Bruins team from the early 90s, it surprises me they never won a Stanley Cup because they were so good. I guess they ran into the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Oilers. Just They, they couldn't overcome those two teams. How good were these Boston Bruins for fans that maybe weren't even alive to see these teams play in the early 90s? Well, they, you know, and I end up playing there. I think uh, when do I play there? Ninety two, ninety three. Just a couple uh, years Boston later. Yeah, just a couple years later. Yeah. So that mentality when I was there, and the mentality that was in Boston, you know, you had that working that workman's mentality. And and that, well, I was there with Brian Sutter, but we were second in the league behind Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was the top. Yep. Oh, that's where Mario uh, won us uh, two cups when I was there, but not with them. But um, so we were second behind them, and. But we had Adam Oates there, you know, and uh, he's a Hall of Famer. He had Ray Bork. Cam was sort of playing on one leg because he'd gone through the hit from uh, Samuelson. So, but they, but everybody else that was there, it just had a workman's mentality, and they, they just every night the Boston Bruins come to work, but they could never just get over the the hump to get to the promised land, and then. Eventually they got over there, but they won it finally. But but that's the Boston Bruins makeup back in the day. October 18th, the Nordiques managed to pick up their first win. It's an 8-5 to win over the Toronto Maple Leafs. Joe Sackick had two. Tony McKegney had two. The others were scored by Matt Sundin, Brian Fogarty, Mike Howe, and a guy named Guy Lafleur. Tell us about playing with Guy Lafleur. <laughs> you know, that's, when I grew up uh, in Lucky Lake, Saskatchewan, my hometown, um, so every Saturday night, there was a hockey night in Canada yep. and probably 75% of the time, 80% of the time it was the Montreal Canadians were going to be on. And the other 20 was Toronto Maple Leafs at that point in time. And probably the reason being the, the Montreal Canadians were always winning the Stanley Cup at that point. Yep. So my hero at that time growing up and the guy that I wanted to be like when I went and skated out there on the ice was I wanted to be Guy Lafleur. And uh, I got to watch him and idolize him and, and just to see them win the Stanley Cup all the time. And now I'm sitting there uh, in camp, playing on the same team, looking across the room, and here's Guy Lafleur, and you know, he, he just to watch his how he was and in, in the in the locker because you know he, guys back then they go down in the back room and then they you know Guy would smoke a cigarette and um, so he'd have a cigarette. He had, uh, but it, it was just it was he was so old school and right. to think that it would almost make you think that he was like one of you, but he just was an exceptional hockey player because once you get there and you see that the because Quebec sort of where he grows his junior career and all that come through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's banners that were up in the rink for the Guy Lafleur because he was such a phenomenal player back in the day. And I, I believe when I was even up there for Pee Wee Quebec, I think he, he still holds records in Pee Wee Quebec tournaments because he scored so many goals and, and so many games. In that. So, you know, he was just a phenomenal athlete. And then to he invited us there, there was these things they had the sugar shack where uh, they were called where you would go out and, you know they had maple syrup, and you'd sit down in the hot in the in the winter time, and you you know you have some sodas and some maple syrup and that. But the flower had one of those, and so you know we'd go. He'd invite people out there. You'd hang out and have a good time with them, and 
you know, and, and you're just sitting there thinking, God, here I'm sitting with the guy that I idolized. You know, it, it was uh, as, as nice as could be. There wouldn't be a, a better guy that you could probably, he was funny. He kept to himself, but he sat in the locker room and he wasn't scared to throw it out there also. Getting goosebumps just hearing about it. It must have been just an oh. unbelievable experience. When, when we started out, and I think it's the second year was it when Flower, because that's when Bergie's there, the second year, because mm-hmm. he comes in and, and Flower was, he sort of brings Flower in. Because I believe he comes from the Rangers at that point in time. I, I think that's how it works out. And so Bergie's got him there. So before every practice, so we're young kids growing up, and we're getting uh, practice time comes, and you go and you get ready, you go out on the ice. Well, guess he's already on the ice, Gabe Fleur. So he, he's been out there. So I'd start to go out there early with him, and just because you know I, that's I wanted to just see what oh, yeah. was doing. I, I just idolized him. So he would line these pucks up in a half circle. You know, he would sit there and just take shots at the net. Boom, just go through them. So you're, he'd probably have about 30 to 50 pucks, and he would just go around the circle and shoot them. So then, you know, it, you're sitting out there, and he said, yeah, go ahead. So we'd line them up, and, and you, you wouldn't realize how hard it was to go through the whole process until, you know, you actually tried it. So, you know, he's got these big, and I refer to him like the flower had these big wrists on him, like Bobby Hall and Brett Hall do. Mm-hmm. They got those huge wrists on him, and that's how the flower had it. He would just sit there and, he could, and I swear to God to this day, and I tell people stories, but he could curve the puck if he wanted to when he shot it. And people say, no, nah. yeah, but that's what he would do. He had such a boomerang on a stick, and he would flip it some way, and the damn puck, he could get it to knuckle sometimes. He could get it mm. to, it was, it, was just, it was just watching, it was like watching the magician out there on the ice. It, it was amazing. It was amazing. God, that's so... I really, really enjoyed hearing about Guy Lafleur and Joe Sackick and so many of these players, because these were the guys I really grew up watching. I was born in 84, so my earliest hockey memories were like the late 80s. And I still remember seeing the Quebec Nordiques with those cheesy iron-on jerseys. Darren talks a lot more about the Quebec Nordiques in part two, which will drop at 8 a.m. on Thursday. We also talk about his trade, living with Kelly Chase, And of course, a ton of fight talk. We talk about him fighting Probert, Vial, Nick Kiprios, just to name a few. So make sure you're tuned into that. Want to thank Sean McIndoe again for stopping by. Hope everyone has a great week. Sorry for the length on this one. I'll try to keep the next one a little bit shorter, but enjoy the week. We'll see you on Thursday morning at 8 a.m.